0: Let's generate our motivation. So check the mind to see if there's any kind of random thoughts going on in it. If there's thoughts of dissatisfaction, thoughts of wanting thoughts of boredom. And instead of letting those afflictions rest in the mind, let's remember our Buddha potential and the fact that right now we have a precious human life and the opportunity to really make use of it in a very positive and wonderful way, by progressing on the path to awakening. Not because we want to be Buddha so we can be the best, but so that we will be able to work without ever getting tired or discouraged or hopeless, having all the wisdom and skill and compassion it takes to work for the benefit of all sentient beings as much as we can, as much as their karma will allow us. So with this very expansive view of our human potential, instead of remaining small-minded, picking at small, temporary things that even in a week, let alone a year, we won't remember, let's ground our motivation in the bodhicitta and in the long-term view that it leads us to Have you ever um, been in a room, any kind of room, and uh, looked around and saw that, that you were the only person in the Dharma, the only person thinking about future lives and human potential and so on, and that everyone else in the room was focused on uh, being happy in this life? and fending off whatever they didn't like. And to sit there, and I, because I, this happens to me, and then I say, why am I so fortunate to have this outlook on life? And other people aren't. And even if I told them, they wouldn't have that outlook on life. It wouldn't be something they were interested in. So it's always kind of a puzzle to me. We can be so close to somebody sitting right next to them. Or we could be very good friends from, you know, high school or whatever. And yet our minds uh, think in totally different ways. Yeah? So, so close but so far. Hmm? and that even if we try and verbalize you know what we're thinking about and people wouldn't be interested or wouldn't understand yeah and that there's no way we can make somebody understand yeah so it's it's a puzzle so near but so far mm-hmm. So, while we have this chance and this fortune, let's really make use of it. So, we've been working on samsara, nirvana, and Buddha nature, and we're on chapter, what number chapter are we on? Four, about the afflictions, their rising, and their antidotes. And so we were especially talking about uh, antidotes, counterforces, or antidotes to the afflictions. And then uh, last week I'd gone through the list on page 115. So that's just a partial list of antidotes. But the more we can get familiar with those, yeah, and practice them in our med- daily meditation, not waiting until the, um, the <laughs> you know, <we laughs> don't wait until you fall down the stairs to put in a guard, a handrail, okay? <laughs> you know, so do something to, to prepare your mind, and uh, then when something happens, you'll have some tools to work with the situation. So, uh, His Holiness continues, at the initial stages of practice, lessening our afflictions is difficult. They seem to arise out of nowhere because we are so habituated to them. So they arise out of nowhere also because we're not very aware of what's going on in our mind. So there could be an affliction mulling over and we're doing our creative writing story about something, and we don't even recognize that's going on. And then, by the time the affliction gets strong, it feels like it came out of nowhere, but actually it was growing the whole time. Yeah? But also, we're so habituated to them that they seem normal and the people around us think that they're very normal. Unless, of course, our anger is related to them, then that's not right. But otherwise, if our anger is related to the same people their anger is, then that's normal and is correct. (laughs) Okay, so our counter forces are weak. Yeah, why? Well, first of all, we don't know them. Second of all, we learn them, but we didn't review them, so we don't remember them. Third of all, we review them, we remember them, but we don't practice them in our daily meditation. So our antidotes are weak. And time and continuous effort are needed to strengthen the antidotes and to develop positive qualities. It's like anything we cultivate. It takes time. Rehabituation, you know? You don't learn to type in one day. You don't learn to ski in one day. Yeah. So all these things require practice. They require learning and then practice. Some people want to skip over the learning and just go to the practice. But if you haven't studied, you don't know what to meditate on and what to practice on, practice, you know, and then you're left with your own devices. And as we were noting, I guess it was yesterday morning, that sometimes we cannot tell the difference between what to practice and what not to, and what to abandon. And we can't tell the difference between what is virtuous and what is not virtuous. Although we think we do, but, you know, when push comes to shove, we aren't so sure. Okay, so being patient with ourselves and going ahead with a determined optimistic attitude are important to train our minds in new mental habits. Okay, so we have to be patient with ourselves, don't have unrealistic expectations that we're going to change overnight, okay? Um, And we have to go ahead with a determined attitude. In other words, uh, yeah, one that is saying, I want to do this and I'm going to do it, and there may be bumps in the road, but that's okay because what I'm doing is something useful and good for myself and others, and I'm determined to, to go in this direction. Okay, so you have to have determined and optimistic, yeah, knowing and having confidence that you can develop these qualities and that you can learn this material. If we aren't optimistic and our whole view of ourselves is, I can't do it, I'm incapable, I'm stupid, this is too hard, I don't have the energy and strength, it's boring, I want to do something else. If you have that idea, uh, are you going to get anywhere with, I don't care, practice Dharma or whatever else you're doing, you're not going to be able to do it with that attitude. Yeah? Are you? I mean, can you do anything worthwhile with that kind of attitude? Uh, No, it doesn't matter what it is, yeah? You just want (sighs) to... Okay, so you have to have an optimistic attitude and say, yeah, I can do this. It might be difficult. It might take a long time. That doesn't matter. It's worthwhile. I know the path. I can go ahead. Yeah? So the above-counter forces that higher in the page on 115 are temporarily effective for the specific affliction they counteract to gain proficiency in them we must practice them regularly highlight that word it, it the regularly means often consistently it doesn't mean once in a while or once a year okay So we have to practice regularly, especially when we are not in the heat of an affliction. Why do we practice it when the afflictions are not strong? Because then we can really understand how the antidote works. We can follow its perspective from beginning to end and really believe it. And, you know, notice that that perspective is really something correct. And we can't really do that, yeah, if we haven't practiced and we find ourselves in the middle of the situation because we are too overpowered by the situation and we get lost in it. Okay? So we have to practice these things, you know, in our daily practice when we're not upset or even you get upset during the day in the evening when you get up, you sit down to meditate, then you practice. Or you notice craving, you know, and greed and attachment arising during the day. Then, if you don't, you know, if you don't have time to f- counteract them, then when you sit down that evening to go through and really, you know, reason with yourself and like why. That craving is, fulfilling that craving is not going to make you happy. Yeah? And really go over the various antidotes so that you, you gain the familiarity with them. Okay. It's kind of like, you know, if you were a doctor. Oh, well, I know. We've been having the the class, you know, where Venerable, uh, Venerable Fauci has been teaching us. How to, uh, you know, uh, CPR. yeah, CPR, you know, do this to get somebody's heart pump. Now, does she just explain it to us and then that's the end of it? No, she makes us do it. And then she holds the class every year so that we remember to do it. And, you know, and then I hear some people want to go and take a more advanced class in, in Coeur d'Alene and really get to practice. So that's good because if you just hear it and you don't practice it, you know, somebody's like had a heart attack in front of you, and you're sitting there going, Ah, uh, what do I do? Ah, uh, let's see, I'm supposed to do something with my hands, but where do I put that? <laughs> yeah. And then you forget what to do. So it's it's really a matter of learning and practice. Okay, so the antidotes must be applied skillfully. Okay, highlight that word too. So that we don't go too far in the other direction. For example, the antidote to lust is reflecting on the foulness of the body. However, if done unskillfully, this could lead us to hating our own bodies or disparaging the people whose bodies we are attracted to. Okay, so you will find people, well, one of the Parajika uh, offenses for uh, bhikshus and bhikshunis occurred because there were some monks who were meditating very intently on the foulness of the body and began to really get this sense that the body is just a bunch of goo and it's just, it's filthy and it's, you know, nothing worth hanging on to. So when another monk came, uh, they said, please kill us, we want to be separated from this horrible body. And that other monk, you know, um, killed them. And then when the Buddha heard about this, he said, (laughs) I can tell you what I'd say, but I'm sure the Buddha was much more polite, Um, Yeah, so that happened because they were meditating incorrectly. They went too far, you know, in that extreme. Or sometimes uh, you meet people, again, who they're attracted to somebody. They meditate on the foulness of the body. Or whatever sex you are attracted to, you meditate on the foulness of that body. But then you start disliking all the people who have that kind of body. And you want them to go away because they are disturbing your mind. And you start thinking, your lust is their fault. Okay. And that that's not very nice, you know. It's a form of discrimination against other people. Uh, and it it's very hurt It hurts a lot of people. So we have to know how to meditate correctly on, on things. Okay. Um, Similarly, if cultivated unskillfully, loving-kindness could lead to attachment. So it might seem like loving-kindness is the antidote to attachment, you know? You're really clinging, clutching, possessive of somebody, and you think, oh, if I could have loving-kindness for them, then I, I wouldn't feel that clinging, clutching thing. Yeah. But you meditate on loving-kindness, and loving-kindness is... You, you know, you really want somebody to have happiness and its causes. So you imagine that person being happy. You imagine them having the causes of happy happiness. And then somehow their cause of happiness becomes you and, uh, you are necessary in their life and they are necessary in your life. And before you know it, because you haven't meditated correctly on love, you've generated attachment to them. Okay? That's why they say when we cultivate love, we should start out with somebody like a a teacher or, you know, some respected elder, somebody that we're not going to have any kind of desire or, or specific attachment for. You don't start meditating on love for, you know, your spouse or, uh, you know, your kids or whatever like that, because, that you know, it's very hard to keep it at the Buddhist meaning of love. It quickly goes to attachment. So the antidotes, uh, okay. While using these antidotes to temporarily reduce the force of coarse afflictions, we should also reflect on emptiness to cultivate the wisdom that will eliminate all afflictions forever. By combining single-pointed concentration with the correct understanding of emptiness, our wisdom will eventually become strong enough to uproot the afflictions and obscurations from the mind so that they never return, okay? So don't just learn the uh, these temporary antidotes that are for specific afflictions, but also try and familiarize yourself at least with the teachings and meaning of emptiness because that realization of the emptiness of inherent existence can obliterate all the afflictions. Okay, so then the reflection yeah this is your homework so which affliction is the strongest and most frequent in your mind anybody want to volunteer some answers and we'll see if the group agrees with you <laughs> <laughs> anger everybody think her biggest problem is anger of course, we don't. We can't crawl in her mind and see. You don't think so? Maybe. Maybe not. Yeah. Other people. Attachment. Hmm. Other people. Pride. Hmm. Other people currently. <laughs> When's it going to change? Tomorrow? <laughs> in one or two countless gradients? <laughs> yeah. So, so think about that. Know what you what the great the strongest one is for you. Then contemplate its disadvantages in this life and its disadvantages for your spiritual path. Okay, so the problems that affliction causes you in this life and how it creates, it makes us do things that create negative karma that interfere with us following the path. And then the third, what is the temporary antidote to that affliction? So some afflictions may have several temporary antidotes. So it's good, you know, to familiarize yourself with all of them because depending on the situation, one antidote may appeal to you at that moment uh, more readily and work uh, better than another one. So it's good to have a variety. So remember situations when that affliction was strong and contemplate its antidote. Okay. So remember... Th- situations where you, you were in, where that, you know, affliction was very strong. And you know how when we think about past situations where there was harm or afflictions or greed or whatever it is, how we start feeling that emotion again? We just remember the situation and then our mind gets triggered and we start feeling that emotion again, Okay when you do that start applying the antidote yeah don't just sit there and oh i got triggered and then you sit there and ruminate more and more and so that you you know your affliction gets stronger and stronger but like okay i remember that situation and now i'm feeling that again and what's the antidote and you're sitting in your meditation and doing that and running, you know, going through the antidote and really using it on your mind. And that is very, very helpful for resolving all sorts of things that happened in the past that you haven't resolved yet. Because you go through and you practice the antidote. And as you practice it, you're affecting that affliction right right then and there in real time, even though the affliction arose because you remembered a situation, not because you're in it right now. Okay? So you practice the antidotes that way. So see if the force of the affliction subsides even a little, uh, you know, when you're practicing the antidote. And when it does, then rejoice and be happy about it. And then you know, okay, I'm getting somewhere. And these antidotes are affecting my mind in a good way. Okay, then His Holiness continues. I came across an interesting passage written by the Kadampa master, Togme Sangpo, that called the view of the personal identity, the spear of the Buddhas. Okay? Okay. So it's the spear that the Buddha's using, going to use to fight the afflictions, and that's what he called view of the personal identity. Okay, that eye grasping. So this is unusual because afflictions are typically said to lack any redeeming qualities. Yeah, but here Togme Sampo described a skillful way of using the view of a personal identity as a weapon to destroy the dukkha caused by the view of a personal identity. So you use that afflictions to destroy the dukkha that 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 affliction uh, gives rise to. So as initially, as beginners, with strong self-grasping, we think, I want to be free of samsara. Yeah, like at your first Dharma course, do you have that feeling? I want to meditate, I want to be free of samsara, I want to give up the eight worldly concerns, I can't stand, you know, my my screwed up mind anymore. Yeah, but there's but you're saying I want to, I, I, yeah, a lot. Okay. So although this aspiration is afflicted by the view of a personal identity, it motivates us to learn, think, and meditate on emptiness, emptiness, which will eventually destroy the view of a personal identity. So you may be thinking, I want to realize, you know, I want to realize emptiness, I want to get out of samsara, I want to become a Buddha. And that, even though there's this strong eye grasping at that moment. It motivates you to, to learn, reflect on, and meditate on the Dharma. And when you do those three, learning, contemplation, and meditation, then you become able, eventually, to overcome that, uh, that view of the personal identity. Are you seeing how it works? Yeah? So it's, it's a skillful kind of way. So here we see that for some people, at a certain point in their practice, grasping at truly uh, a, grasping at a truly existent self could spur them to practice. So I've heard that when they teach debate in the monasteries, okay, if somebody is um, not doing very well, they haven't prepared, they're not studying and their debates are not so good, they will make fun of them and ridicule them in front of the whole class, okay? And that makes the I come up very strongly, like, you know, they're making fun of me and I don't want to be made a fun of but that will motivate them then to study and prepare for the debate so that their debating is, is you know, good quality. Okay? So you, they deliberately invoke that kind of eye grasping to motivate somebody to, do you know, do something. So with some people that works very well, yeah? But with some of the childish people... They get humiliated in front of the group, and instead of being motivated to overcome their, their own impediments, they cry. Uh, they made fun of me in front of everybody. I'm humiliated. How? What kind of teacher is this that says these things and makes me feel bad in front of everybody? So a teacher has to know you know, what kind of disciple it is, you know, and if somebody can take it. But for somebody who can take it, it's the teacher does that, and it's extremely helpful for them. I think I I, uh, told you about one situation when I was in uh, Taiwan in 1986, and uh, after the ordination, I went to Shan and they were having a conference there. And then afterwards, they took us on a tour, uh, you know, around the island. And then at the end, they had, you know, a final goodbye kind of thing. So everybody was in the room, and uh, the master was up at the front with some of his senior sangha members. And he, he, there were like maybe three people up there, three sangha members. So he was saying, oh, this monk had this responsibility, did a very good job, you know, uh, at it, and we're very pleased with it, and this nun was in charge of uh, whatever it was, and she also did a very, very good job, and, uh, you know, please give her some applause. Uh, But this monk over here, was a total dud. We gave him responsibility. He didn't do it. His department was messed up. And we're really sorry about that. And the monk standing there in front of this whole audience of distinguished guests. And the master says that about him. And the monk stood there. He listened. And he took it. And I thought... He's the one that is the close disciple to the master. Yeah? He's the one. Because the master could say that to him and knew, know that he could take it and know that, you know, whether he really did mess up or not, we don't know, but the master knew. That he that his saying that would really motivate that that monk, you know, and te- test his ability, uh, test how well his practice was, you know, because if he got angry, being humiliated in front of the group and just got upset and stomped out of the room, well, that shows the master what level that disciple's at, and you know. Then he, he thinks about how to help him. But if he sees, you know, the monk can stand there and take it, then that indicates, you know, that his practice is going well. Okay. So, yeah, it's something to think about. You know? When other people criticize us, do we just dissolve? Even if it's not in front of a whole group, you know, what is it that Thong Sampo says in, in the 31 Practices of Bodhisattva? Somebody talks about your faults throughout the 3,000 worlds and, you know, you're supposed to turn around and see that person. Yeah, speak of his good qualities. What? <laughs> but he just said this, he has no good qualities. Well, if you've been training your mind properly, then you see, okay, somebody's pointing out my faults. That, that is actually quite helpful to me because sometimes I'm, ba- I'm blind to my own faults. And when somebody points them out, then I know what I need to work on. And even if I don't think I have those faults, still criticizing me either to my face or in front of a bunch of people It gives me the opportunity to see how ego-sensitive I am. Do I take everything personally and I just completely collapse? Or can I, you know, endure some harsh words? Because after all, they're only words. There's nothing that's physically harming me. Okay. So it's good to, you know, when this happens, to to test. And, you know, you don't have to wait for your teacher to 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 do that. You can see how you react when, you know, somebody's telling you where to put the spatula. It's, you know, right there in our face. And and we get a good perspective of, you know, how we're doing. Mm-hmm. Okay, so a similar idea is found in a Pali-sutra. So explaining the Dharma to uh, to to a bhikshuni, Ananda said, It has been said, bhikkhuni, this body has come into being through craving. Yet based on craving, craving can be abandoned. With reference to what was this said? Yeah, huh? Okay, the body came, came into being through craving. Okay, we know that. You know, we studied the 12 lengths. Yet, based on craving, can, craving can be abandoned. How is that? Because usually when I crave, I go after what I'm craving, and my craving gets worse. So, uh, what is this? So, in this case... Ananda says, A monastic hears it said, They say that a monastic named so-and-so, by the destruction of the pollutants in this very life, enters and dwells in the unpolluted liberation of mind, liberation by wisdom, having realized it for himself by direct knowledge. Okay? So somebody... Uh, some monastic hears it said that somebody's attained our hardship. yeah, so that monastic who hears that thinks, "Oh, when shall I too realize the unpolluted liberation of mind, liberation by wisdom? okay, so he's thinking i want it, I want that too. so sometime later, based on that craving to attain liberation of mind, liberation by wisdom, he abandons craving because the craving motivates him to practice the path, and by practicing the path, he abandons uh, ignorance, which is the root of the craving. It is account of this uh, that it was said, this body has come into being through craving, yet based on craving, craving can be abandoned. Yes, you see how craving was used in a positive sense to, uh, that, mo- that monastic heard that and used that to really uh, give his practice some juice. Characterized by this body, which is in the nature of dukkha, samsara comes about through craving. Yet, when a monastic hears that another monastic has attained liberation, He craves to attain this, too. Okay? So maybe he's he's like, well, no, he's not jealous, but he's like, I want that, too. I want to get out of samsara. Motivated by this new craving, he practices well and attains nirvana, the destruction of all craving. In the passage following this, Ananda says the same regarding arrogance. Here uh, uh, here a monastic hears that another monastic has attained nirvana, and his pride is wounded because the other monastic attained it first. Arrogance arises in him, and not wanting to be outshined or outshone, he is energized to prove that he can attain nirvana as well. This motivation of arrogance instigates him to practice in such a way that all his arrogance is eradicated forever. Some teachers use similar technique to energize lazy students on the debate ground. These are skillful ways to use afflictions to destroy afflictions. Okay, so there you have it, Stephen. Yeah, But it does, doesn't it? You know, we have this kind of competitive nature, and it's like, oh, somebody else got that realization. I don't have it yet. Oh, I'm not going to be outdone. So you motivate yourself to practice harder. When we first learn the Dharma, living without attachment seems impossible, doesn't it? We fear relinquishing attachment will turn us into uncaring, self-absorbed individuals. If I don't have attachment for things, if I don't want anything, then I'm just a bump on the log. I don't care about this, I don't care about that. Okay, that's what some people think freedom from attachment means that's not what freedom from attachment means freedom from attachment means we can enjoy something when it's there and when it stops we're okay we can enjoy it when it's there and if we don't get it we're okay so freedom from attachment you know eliminates a lot of the suffering that we have because the more we're attached to something the more upset and uh, depressed and unhappy we get when we can't get that. Okay, so when we don't get attached, it's not that we become dull and bored, but we can enjoy something right then and there, and then then when it's over, we're okay. Yeah? It's not like, oh, I had my chocolate cake. When am I going to have another piece of chocolate cake like that? I had such a good time with so-and-so. When are we going to have another good time? I want that. And you know how we try and recreate good experiences? Even, you know, when we have a what, a meditation that we say, good, you know, oh, I had a really good meditation. It's like, I really got a feeling for this. And then we try so hard to recreate it. And you know, you, you, we can't force ourselves to recreate a, an experience. We just have to do the practice, and sometimes the experience is there, and sometimes it's not. But it's all those times of not having the experience that make it so that we can have one time when we do have it. Because we have to practice again and again and again and again it isn't like, you know, we do something once and we get the experience the next time and next time and next time. No. Yeah, we have to build up to it through the practice. Okay. Okay, so thankfully, this uh, un- becoming self, uncaring, self absorbed individuals is not the case. Some examples of how liberated beings respond to real human situations will give us a glimpse of what living with a transformed mind will be like. Okay, so Shariputra, the Buddha's foremost disciple in wisdom, commented to some monastic friends that he wondered if there were anything in the world whose change or loss would cause him sorrow. Okay, so this is an example of how a liberated being is. Uh, Anything in the world whose change or loss would cause him sorrow, lamentation, pain, or despair. Examining himself, he did not see anything that would destabilize his emotional balance. Wow, wouldn't that be nice? Anything could happen, and you're like still water emotionally, you know? So... uh, Yeah, examining himself, he did not see anything that would destabilize his uh, emotional balance. Ananda, the Buddha's attendant, then asked him, what would happen if our teacher, the Buddha, were to undergo change and pass away? Wouldn't that cause you pain? Okay, so do you think at that moment Shariputra burst into tears and wailed and beat his chest and said, I can't stand it? Now, Shariputra responded with all sincerity and said, Friend, even if the teacher himself were to undergo change and alteration, still sorrow, lamentation, pain, displeasure, and despair would not arise in me. However, it would occur to me, the teacher, so influential, so powerful and mighty, has passed away. If the Blessed One had lived for a long time, that would have been for the welfare and happiness of the multitude, out of compassion for the world, for the good welfare and happiness of devas and humans. So he was saying, you know, if the Buddha were to die, he wouldn't be freaked out and in pain himself but he would realize that the world had lost the Buddha. And that would make him very sad, because if the Buddha had stayed alive for a long time, it would have been very beneficial for all the sentient beings uh, who would become the objects of his compassion. Stunned with admiration... Ananda responded that Shariputra's emotional balance and compassion, even at the time of losing the most important person in his life, were due to the depth of his dharma practice. And this is what Ananda said. It must be because I making mind-making, and the underlying tendency to arrogance have been thoroughly uprooted in the Venerable Shariputra for a long time, that even if the teacher himself were to undergo change and alteration, still sorrow, lamentation, pain, pleasure, and despair would not arise in him. So Ananda really saw what Shariputra's level of attainment was and appreciated it. Shariputra's equanimity in the face of his own personal loss was not due to repressing his emotions. The attainment of arhatship did not make him a cold person. He was certainly concerned and deeply moved by the prospect of the the Buddha's passing, but it was not out of self-interest, for he had forsaken all grasping to I and mine, as well as relinquished the deeply rooted conceit thinking, I exist. He was moved because he saw the benefit of the Buddha's presence in the world and the loss of his pa- passing for all beings who need the Dharma, as sorrow was for others, not himself. Interestingly, when Shariputra heard that the Buddha would soon attain Paranirvana, He told the Tathagata that he could not bear to witness the event, and so he chose to attain parinirvana himself before the Buddha. (laughs) Okay, the next section is called Afflictions, Our Real Enemy. So a large part of this is from Bodhicaryavatara, which we've gone through before, but it does not hurt one iota to go through it again because this is very important here. When we face difficulties in life, we tend to attribute their causes to external facts, factors. A friend's behavior, our employer's speech, governmental policies, and so forth. That's what's going on right now, isn't it? In everybody's life, and, you know, the newspapers, Every, I mean... Every day, it's the same thing. Everybody, you know, people ganging up and blaming somebody for some problem. Yeah, it's we never get in the news. So and so are coming together to solve a problem. It's always, you know, okay. Afghanistan fell. Well, whose fault is it? Is this and this and this and we play the blame game. Okay. So because we look outside. For the, pro- for the problem. Because it's never us, is it? We always have a good motivation. We always do our best. It's always somebody else who doesn't think far enough in advance, who is too close-minded to remedy problems. Right? Yeah? And if only people would follow my way, then it would have turned out okay. So how many people are proposing how many different ways that Bo- Biden should have acted in order to prevent what's happening in Afghanistan right now? You know, he inherited this from three previous presidents. Yeah, he didn't have much choice. At least, you know, he inherited, there was no choice in that. Okay. So the Buddha questioned our assumption that the chief cause of our problems lies outside of ourselves. He pointed us back to our own minds, asking us to examine our thoughts and emotions to see how they create both internal unhappiness as well as disharmony in our relationships and in society. Wow, wouldn't it be nice to teach the U.S. Congress, all those people in the government, just this one point, yeah, to get point point back to your own mind, asking to examine our thoughts and emotions to see how they create internal unhappiness as well as disharmony in our relationships and in society. Wow, what would the newspapers write about if people started to do that? Yeah? What would Tucker Carlson have to say every day? You know? He'd be at a loss for words. I'm sure he'd find something. (laughs) The disadvantages of distorted conceptions and disturbing emotions extend beyond this lifetime. Adversely influencing all of our lives. Shantideva likened afflictions to vicious enemies, whom in our confusion we treat as friends. So this is one way to look at the afflictions as enemies. Okay. There's another way to look at afflictions as uh, things that are saying, hey, this needs attention, this area of your life, this area of your thinking needs some attention, so pay attention here and, you know, see if you can work it out. So, you know, for some people seeing afflictions as the enemy is is really good because then you're really clear, you know, what to counteract. For some people the idea of enemy doesn't work very well, and so then if you just think it's like, uh, what would it be like, You know, like just some kind of uh, ding-dong bell saying, this needs attention, take a look at it. Okay? Like you're raging with anger and somebody goes, ding-dong. You know, anger is kind of a problem. It's making you miserable. Maybe pay some attention to it. So like that. Okay? Okay, so here's what Shantidevas says. Enemies such as craving and hatred are without arms, legs, and so on. They are neither courageous nor wise. How is it that they have enslaved me? We are slaves to our to uh, uh, craving and, and anger, hatred, aren't we? They come in the mind, we just... We kowtow to them and do whatever they say. But they have no arms. They have no legs. Yeah. They're not courageous. If somebody challenges them, you know, they kind of whimper. And and they're not very wise because they they're based on misconception. So how is it that they've controlled my life and made me a slave to them. It's a good question to really probe in our mind, you know. Why do I fall for the same nonsensical stories that my mind makes up that make me have the same afflictions arise in my mind that cause me misery? Misery, you know, what's lying behind that habit that I keep doing that? Hmm? Dwelling in my mind, the afflictions ruin me. At their pleasure, they cause me harm. And yet, I patiently endure them and do not get angry at my tolerance with this shameful and improper situation. So the afflictions are in our mind, yeah. They run the show at their pleasure. They harm us by making us unhappy, by making us feel guilty, by making us uh, get engaged in non-virtuous actions. So they harm us in so many different ways. And yet, you know, if, if there was somebody who came to the abbey to harm you, yeah, would you just patiently endure them and not get angry? Yeah. If an outside, an external person challenges you to something, are you going to go, oh yeah, that's okay, I'll do whatever you say? No. But we do that with the afflictions, don't we? Yeah. Jealousy says... S- smash that other guy's happiness, aye aye sir. Oh, I'm sorry. It, it goes this way. Did I do it right? So you know, should we we follow? Yeah. Attachment says go get that. We run off to get it. Yeah. So I patiently endure them and do not get angry at my tolerance for this shameful and improper situation. So here I am, a Dharma practitioner. I should know better, or I do know better, but I just am too lazy to practice. No. So I should do something about my bad habits, but uh, manana in la manana. I'll I'll start later. Right now, I don't want to push myself because if I push myself, it's just too much. Yeah. So where's the chocolate? Let's get a whole bunch of chocolate. All if all devas and humans were my enemies, even they would be unable to bring me to the fire of Avicii hell. Nobody else can send us to hell, they can tell us go to hell a lot, but they can't make us go there. Okay, when encountered. It consumes even the ashes of Mount Meru. Afflictions, the mighty enemies, instantly throw me there. Okay? So when uh, the afflictions, it should say, when encountered, they consume even the ashes of Mount Meru. Fire Avici, when encountered, it can... Cons- okay, yeah, it refers to the fire. Okay, so the fire burns even the ashes of the great mountain. Afflictions, yeah, so nobody else can send us to Avici hell, but the afflictions inside of ourselves, when we bow down to them, they do. Yeah, because they're the ones that lie behind our creation of destructive karma. All other enemies are incapable of remaining for such a length of time, as can my afflictions, the enduring enemy, that is neither beginning nor end, if left, if left unopposed. So our afflictions are not going to go away by themselves, so they have no beginning, and unless we counteract them, they're not going to have an end. But all other enemies, okay, so you could be fighting the Taliban and ISIS and whoever it is, yeah, they can't remain there from beginningless time ad infinitum in, in the future. You know, they're living beings and they're going to die, and... You know, in a few years, human life is, a, is very short, and they will die and go away. But my afflictions are an enduring enemy, and they're going to be around for a long time unless I do something. Does this give you some energy to do something about the afflictions? While in cyclic existence... How can I be joyful and unafraid if in my heart I readily prepare a place for this incessant enemy of long duration, the sole cause for the increase of all that harms me? When I'm in cyclic existence, how can I just la la la, loll around, go to the beach, go to parties? You know, eat really well, see all my friends, be completely unafraid and just do whatever I feel like doing when I feel like doing it. You know, get all my digital uh, things and have the latest of this and that. You know, how can I do that when, in the process of doing this, I am preparing a place for this incessant incessant enemy of long duration, okay, for all the afflictions to sit there, to come into my mind and stay there. And I just invite them in, you know. It's like if if some terrorist came to the abbey, you know, and we just open the door, we meet them, you know, at Ananda and say, oh, come in, welcome, you know, you friend, sit down, have some tea. we'll we'll uh, you know, have you eaten yet? We'll give you something to eat. Yeah, are we gonna, yeah, actually, I think that might be a good strategy to do if so. If a terrorist comes, totally throw that person off, okay? But it's like, you know, in inviting the thief in, And, uh, yeah, you know, somebody comes to steal and you invite them in and you say, oh, and what would you like to take when you leave? (laughs) Okay. (laughs) yeah. So we, uh, you know, we're oblivious to what the real harm is and we actually encourage it. And how shall I ever have happiness if in a net of attachment within my mind There dwell the guardians of the prison of cyclic existence, these afflictions that are my butchers and tormentors in hell. So, if I know the cause of my own misery is in my own mind, how can I ever just sit back and do nothing and and think that I'm going to have happiness? You know, happiness isn't going to come that way. So the afflictions don't have arms and legs. They cannot assault our bodies. Yet the harm they inflict on us is far worse than any external assailant or murderer. The worst thing other sentient beings can do is to take our lives, which is indeed horrible. But they cannot propel us into an unfortunate rebirth the way the afflictions can by motivating us to act non-virtuously and to create the karma that propels us into rebirths of intense suffering. Furthermore, harmful sentient beings will eventually die while the afflictions have resided in our mind beginninglessly and will not depart of their own accord. In fact, they may even go stronger because we've given them a nice comfortable bed to stay in, and and so on. Seen this way, our patient acceptance of afflictions sabotages our own happiness. We will never have happiness as long as this enemy dwells cozily in our mind, constantly inflicting pain on us. We should be totally fed up with this situation and fight back. Yeah. We get fed up with other people. We don't get fed up with our own stupidagios. In fact, we believe all our stupidagios are reality and should be followed. Okay? But we get fed up with other people, but not the afflictions. You know how when we get fed up, it's like I've had enough of this. Yeah, Have you ever said that? Yeah, or has anybody ever said that to you? Like when you were really in trouble when you were a little? I've had enough of your complaining. Yeah. So yeah, so we we think that about other people. I'm fed up. But we're never fed up with our afflictions, yeah? We we love those things. We just, you know, follow them everywhere, and they follow us everywhere. Okay, Shantideva continues, if even scars inflicted by meaningless enemies are worn upon the body like ornaments, then why is suffering a cause of harm to me while impeccably striving to fulfill the great purpose. So the great purpose is full awakening. I'm striving to fulfill that. Okay. And scars inflicted for ordinary people, scars inflicted by other living beings who are actually meaningless enemies, Yeah, you wear those scars on your body like ornaments. Yeah, when you talk to some people who've been to war and they're talking about how brave they were and how they fought the enemy and this and that, and then they'll show, oh, this scar here, you know, this is when I got attacked by this, and here's where an IED hit me. And, you know, there's some pride in, like, I fought courageously against the enemy, and I got wounded, but I was courageous in the front of, of somebody trying to destroy me. Yeah. So if you've been to battle, that you know, that is a way that, that people can think. And I think pro- that's probably the way a lot of soldiers encourage them, uh, each other to think. Instead of, you know, oh, I got injured, woe is me. It's like, that's your, that's your medal. That's showing how courageous and brave you were that you really, you know, stuck, stood up for the country and democracy and freedom. And Yes, you wear it like an ornament. Okay. So it would be better for me to be burned to have my head cut off and be killed rather than ever bowing down to those ever present disturbing conceptions. Huh? What? Really? It'd be better to have my body burned and my head cut off and to be killed rather than give in to a little bit of anger, or, you know, just a little bit of craving. Not, not, not too much. Just a little bit of wanting revenge, you know. But, yeah, we bow down to the afflictions, and then, you know, one thing leads to another, leads to another. When we don't oppose the afflictions, then, you know, they hook us and they just drag us along. Okay. So, deluded afflictions, when, when overcome by the eye of wisdom and dispelled from my mind, where will you go? So, you don't even have to physically fight anybody. You don't have to put on a uniform. You don't have, have to wear, you know, a backpack and a hat and carry an AR, whatever it is, Okay? You don't need to stay in the hot sun, you don't need to stay in the freezing cold, you don't need to have other people shooting at you, okay? It's just the eye of wisdom. And when that eye of wisdom can see through the tricks of the afflictions, where do the afflictions go? Where are they gonna hide out? Yeah, The Taliban, you know, uh, in, in 2001, when the foreign troops came in, it ran out. They hit out in in Pakistan, and they hit out there, and they kept up their training, and they recu- recruited more people. Yeah, they were very patient, very diligent, and then when the right moment came, wham! Okay, so the the afflictions, yeah. The, are they, where are they going to run to and hide out at? Yeah? If my, you know, if, you're, if our eye of wisdom overcomes them, where are the afflictions going to go? Yeah? Into the closet? Are you going to send them to Pakistan? You know, they don't go anywhere because they don't even have bodies. And yet they cause us much more harm than embodied sentient beings do. Where will, you be, where will you dwell to be able to injure me again later? Weak-minded, I have been reduced to making no effort. Because when I can conquer them and dispel them, they have no place to hide out. But when I'm weak-minded, I don't even try to oppose them. If these afflictions do not exist within the objects, the cognitive faculties, or between the two, or elsewhere, then where do they exist, and how do they harm the world? They are like an illusion, thus I should dispel the fear within my heart and strive resolutely for wisdom. For no reason, why should I suffer so much in hell? Okay, so our afflictions, they don't dwell in the, in the objects, that is, the object of the affliction. Okay, if I'm craving money, my craving doesn't dwell inside the money. And, and it doesn't uh, dwell inside my eyes that want to look at the money or my fingers that want to touch the money. Okay, the craving isn't material. Uh-huh. Okay. So where, so where does the craving exist? And how can it harm the world? It doesn't even have a body. And yet, the craving in our own minds harms us much more than some other sentient being ever could. And yet we fear other sentient beings, and we don't fear our own afflictions. Okay, so afflictions are like an illusion. Thus, I should dispel the fear within my heart and strive resolutely for wisdom. Yeah? They appear, but they are not inherently existent. Yeah? They're empty like everything else, and you can see through them. So given that, why should we follow them and why should we suffer in the lower realms because of them? Therefore, having thought about this well, I should try and put these precepts into practice just as they have been explained. If the doctor's instructions are ignored, how will a patient in need of a cure be healed by the medicine? So this is our resolution. I'm going to put these teachings into practice as best as I can. I'm not going to expect myself to be perfect, but I'm going to do as best as I can okay, Uh, and I'll try and practice them as they've been explained. Because, you know, if a doctor gives a prescription and the patient doesn't fill the prescription, and even they fill it, they don't take the the medicine, then they're not going to get cured. So I'm not going to play that game with myself. Proud of their combat, warriors wear their battle scars like medals. When combating this most insidious enemy, our afflictions, we must not shirk from any harm that may come about. We will never bow down to this enemy or accept defeat. For the benefit of all sentient beings, we will generate the wisdom-realizing emptiness that will obliterate the afflictions such that they can never return. Afflictions do not exist in external objects or in our cognitive faculties. Inherently existent afflictions are impossible to find. They don't exist. Okay. Afflictions are like illusions that lack a real essence and can be overcome. Therefore, we must put the Buddha's teachings into practice for they are the medicine that will heal all the in, injuries and all the injuries of cyclic existence. Okay. Then the reflection. Read and contemplate the above verses from engaging in Bodhisattva's deeds one by one, speaking to yourself just as Shantideva speaks to himself. That's what I love so much about this text, is Shantideva's talking to himself. So, you know, so he's talking to himself, and you see how he winds up practicing and turning out. Then, okay, if I try talking to myself like that, then maybe I'll practice like him and I'll turn out like him. Okay, so really go through the verses one by one and, and think about them. Then two remember the afflictions are not who you are. Okay. Put that one somewhere where you can remember it. They are not in in the very nature of your mind and they can be eliminated. And then three cultivate antipathy towards the afflictions and generate strong determination to become familiar with the antidotes to them through having a daily dharma practice. So that's how you do it. Okay, and then we'll read the end to finish up this chapter. So compassion acts like preventative medicine for many of our afflictions. The greater our compassion, the more peace we will experience. My personal experience is that meditating on the suffering of sentient beings and generating compassion for them helps me to develop inner strength. When inner strength and self confidence increase, fear and doubt diminish. That makes us naturally more open to others. Others then reciprocate by being friendly, and this nourishes better communication. And more positive interactions with them. So here he's laying out a whole causal sequence. Okay. Meditating on great compassion. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. Meditating on uh, the suffering of sentient beings at, leads to generating great compassion. Okay. Which leads to developing inner strength because you can see, you can face suffering without falling apart. When inner strength and self-confidence increase, okay, then fear and doubt diminish. When fear and doubt diminish, that makes us naturally more open to others. When we're more open with others, then they reciprocate by being friendly. When they reciprocate by being friendly, Uh, That nourishes better communication. When we have better communication, then we have more positive interactions and we're happier. So we laid out this whole sequence. To the contrary, if if we're full of partiality, hatred, fear, and doubt, the door to our heart is closed and everyone we encounter appears suspicious to us. The sad thing is that we then believe that others are just as suspicious of us as we are of them, okay? So, my heart is closed. I'm suspicious of other people's motivations, okay? And because I'm suspicious of them, I assume they're suspicious of me, And that they're going to interact with me with some kind of devious motivation and try and manipulate me. And so, what do I do? I create distance between them and me. Yeah. And when I create distance between me and all other sentient beings, yeah, this spiral fosters loneliness and frustration. You know? So there we are. So, you know, it starts with being suspicious uh, of others. All of us, but especially the younger generation, has the responsibility to make sure that the world is a peaceful place for everyone. This can become reality if we all make an effort to cultivate compassion. Our educational system should focus not only on training the intellect, but also on training the heart. Let's help future generations learn to be good citizens of the planet by modeling compassion and tolerance ourselves. So that concludes that chapter. Any questions or comments?
1: I recently caught up in thinking about a period of my life that was filled with afflictions and became depressed. How could I have stopped this and applied antidotes to these afflictions? Mm.
0: Well, one thing is, it sounds like uh, you remember, uh, the person was remembering something that happened in the past. And then by remembering it, the afflictions arose. So one thing to do is to say that situation is not happening now. Yeah. Because it's not happening now. So what I'm getting upset at is simply the mental images in my mind. That's what's triggering my... Upset because that that same situation is not occurring at this moment. okay? So somehow, whatever I'm upset about is you know that shows how the upset comes from us, not from outside, because the other person isn't there. The situation's not even there. So it's not coming from outside, it's coming from inside, okay? and then you you see and you try and identify what those afflictions are and then you know you look in this book on the, the list on page 115 or you look in any of the thought training texts in, in volume 1 there was a teaching on the eight verses of thought training you know so you go through any of these and you uh you p- apply that affliction yeah right then and there when you're upset.
1: How can we help someone who has an addiction but doesn't think of it as an attachment, such as drugs and alcohol
0: kind of addiction? Whoa. That is difficult. If somebody, you know, has a substance abuse problem and they don't see it as a problem, it's it's really difficult. And the people that I have uh, talked about this with have told me that uh, they had to hit absolute very bottom before they they realized that they needed help. So it's difficult. You can try and talk to somebody, uh, but if they can't see it, then certainly don't support them. Don't give them money that's going to encourage their habit. Um... But remember, you can't create, you can't control everybody. And that really, sometimes it's until that person sees that they're destroying their own life, you can't make them go to rehab. Yeah, it's difficult.
1: Sometimes afflictions seem so strong that nothing works, including the antidotes. What do you do in those cases?
0: You practice the antidotes more. <laughs> Yeah, it's because the antidotes are are weak. The only way to make them strong is to go over them again and again and again and again. Okay. Uh Uh-huh.
1: Shariputra told the Buddha that he couldn't bear to witness him pass into parinirvana. Is this saying Shariputra was attached to the Buddha after all?
0: No. It was saying that That Shariputra, when he thought of the loss to the world, that produced great sadness in him. Yeah. No, it wasn't that he was attached to the Buddha after all. Because Shariputra was an arhat. An arhat has no attachment, and they've eliminated attachment in such a way that it can never come back again.
2: It's just a comment. Um, From these verses, I have... I have really been puzzled for all of the conspiracy theories and the (laughs) QAnon and how people have been so convinced of such distorted conceptions. But these verses are telling me very, very clearly that I have the same issue. That I have the same issue, that I'm just as Uh, my, the distorted conceptions uh around my own mind and that I believe them, I invite them in, I see no results, I don't care, I believe everything that the self-grasping and the craving. Tell me, I can. I'm trying to wrap my mind around how this is the same thing that they are dealing with on a different level. Yeah, I mean, a much a more grosser mis- distortion, you know. But I, I'm trying to put the pieces together on how that can happen. Now I'm seeing it's yeah. because this is what happens in my mind all the time.
0: Yeah, yeah, and it, it all revolves around. The eye grasping and the self centered mind that makes a big deal about anything related to me and then weaves these stories and buys into them. (laughs) Yeah. Okay, then we'll dedicate.